0: But this morning, Psalm 8, beginning with verse 1, and this is the word of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name on all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouths of babes and infants. You have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is, man, that you are mindful of him? and the Son of Man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name on all the earth. And join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad this morning that we have before us the very word of God and that is true and it's certain, and we're asking for your spirit to help us now to, to understand what you're saying here, Father, about this timeless question. And so we ask for your help, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a haunting question, really, one that will receive many different answers here in the Uh, 2021. I mean, what is man? What are humans? Uh, Why is God mindful of us? Why does God care about us? And what difference does our answer make? Maybe it's the 1600 who died in Haiti from the recent earthquake that makes us stop and think. Maybe it's the ongoing battle with COVID that so many face. Maybe it's the crisis of identity that many are struggling with across our nation today. Maybe it's the violence epidemic in our cities today. Maybe it's a video I saw where a teenager said they no longer identify as a human being. Makes you stop and think. Maybe it's the poignant video of that 13 or 14-year-old Afghan girl uh, sharing through the tears. We don't count because we're from Afghanistan. I cannot help crying. I have to wipe away my tears to be able to film this video no one cares about us. We'll die slowly in history. Do we care? And if so, why? And what makes us give value to human life? Well, our psalm this morning asks and answers that question. Psalm 8 celebrates God's majesty and name and glory, and David reflects on that and reveals to us who God is. Uh, in himself and in us. So what do we learn as we contemplate God? And how does it help us with the question, what is man? What are human beings? Let's go to the text and see. First, David begins with the greatness of God. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now David's excited about God's name because remember, a name to the Hebrew reveals who that person is. It reveals information about them. Um, And so... When Moses boldly said, show me your glory, you remember, God agrees to do that. He hides Moses in the cleft of the rock, and then he pronounces his name to Moses. And that's what Dee read this morning in our call to worship. And it's, as God reveals himself, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, our petition is what? Hallowed be your name. Uh, in other words, may God's name that reveals who he is be held in honor. Uh, may be holy and reverenced by all people everywhere. That's why it's, it's wrong to use God's name in vain. It's wrong to use God's name in, in anger or as an expletive. It's wrong to shout, oh my God, as a statement indicating surprise or excitement. God's name is so much more than that. It ought not to be used so lightly. See, to know God's name is to know God. To know God's name means we can have a personal relationship with Him. So in the psalm, David uses two names for God. First, you have Lord in all uppercase letters. That's Yahweh, God's covenant name, by which He's made Himself known to us, sometimes written as Jehovah. The second word David uses is, is lowercase, and that word for Lord just means sovereign master or ruler. So God's the sovereign ruler of the universe. And he's the covenant God who's come near to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The Hebrews were so superstitious about God's name, they would not even say Yahweh. But David has no such fears. He has no trouble using the name of Yahweh in worship, nor should we because God's name is to be celebrated, is to be praised because it is a majestic name. David desires that name, which is uh, for all the earth, be known in all the earth. So there's a great mission statement here. The second thing David does is he goes to the greatness of God's universe. Second part of verse 1, You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Why does God mean... uh, what, what, What does David mean that God set his glory above the heavens? We're in a sense verse 3 answers that. It gives us a perspective. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, what, what would you have set in place? See, David points to heaven and says, God did this. And then he says, remarkably, he did it with his fingers. He did it with his fingers. Uh, it was work. For God, it was not hard. But it was delightful work. So happy Labor Day as we celebrate work tomorrow by taking a day off, ironically. Um, So just how glorious is his creation. You know, there's a beautiful creek at the bottom of the hill beside our house where the, the water has come through and it's carved its way through the rocks over the last couple of thousand years or whatever. But nobody ever comes to see it. Yet there's another place. It's called, I think, the Grand Canyon. It has water going through the bottom of it, and it's carved its way through the rock there over thousands of years. And people flock to that. Now, what's the difference? What's the size? Of course, it's the vastness of the size. And that's what, why David wants us to consider how vast the universe is. Uh, friends, the, the, the wonder of God's glory as it's displayed in the vastness of this universe is astounding. It's necessary for us to understand who we are in relationship to God. If you remember Theodore Roosevelt, the president's strong Christian, uh, he would, we, we said before, he, he'd always take his diplomatic guest at the White House into the back lawn at the end of the day. He wanted them to be overwhelmed by the, the glory of God's creation. He would say the same thing to them that he had said to his friend, the naturalist, William Beebe, some uh, years before and, and B.B. tells us as far back as 1880 when he was at the family home in Sagamore Hill that he and Roosevelt used to go play a little game that after an evening of, of talk they would go out on the lawn and they would search the sky uh, until they found the faint spot of, of light mist just uh, beyond the lower left-hand corner of the great square of Pegasus and one of them would say this that's the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It's as large as our Milky Way. It has 100, It's one of a hundred million galaxies. It consists of one billion suns, each larger than our sun. And you recall, Roosevelt would grin and say, "Now I think we are small enough. Let's go inside and go to bed." For instance, why the 20th century evangelist Vance Habner. Suggested that America's sick today. He said, she's gone indoors. Uh, he said it was probably a sad day when uh, uh, the uh, humans discovered the, that you could have a ceiling. Uh, now, why is that? Uh, well, uh, he moaned, the average young person can give you a lot of information about sports or music or whatever, but what about the world of, of birds and brooks and blossoms? We miss out a lot today by being inside. You can drive through the neighborhoods on Saturdays or in the evenings, and you really don't see that many children outside. Now, remember what did David say? God's glory is above the heavens. Solomon would later say the heavens cannot contain God. Uh, there's no way our minds can get completely around our incredible God and His works of creation and redemption. That's what Thomas Akimpus said, If the works of God could be easily be grasped by human understanding, well, they could not be called wonderful or too great for words. Yet we're privileged to praise. And that's what David's doing. So He has this, this statement here about babies. Praise coming from the lips of children. And this is the verse Jesus takes, and he quotes this verse to justify the response of the people when he enters into Jerusalem that Palm Sunday. See, when people come face to face with the glory of God, either they flee in fear or they fall down in worship because of the relationship with Him. When Jesus refers to this verse, it really angers the Jewish leaders because Jesus is claiming the praise for God is actually an accurately praise for Him. Note that the psalm says that He's ordained the praise, and as Jesus receives and accepts that praise... He's calling the Jewish leaders standing around their enemies of God. It's probably why they were pretty upset. Friends, we're not God's enemies when our relationship is with Jesus Christ. We are to praise and worship the God whose glory is displayed throughout his vast creation. Now, the third thing David describes here is the greatness of his image bearers. Verse 4... What is man that you're mindful of him and the Son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. What a contrast. So what are we in comparison to God? Why does God care about us? James Boyce points out that this psalm celebrates the surpassing majesty of God and places humans within a cosmic framework. It's a way of saying that we'll never understand human beings unless we see them as God's creations a special, uh, responsibility, with special responsibilities to our Creator. At Emerson Hall in Cambridge, Massachusetts, you have the home of Harvard University and the philosophy department there. In that philosophy department, they'll teach you that uh, truth is merely a, a human construct, uh, that God's basically irrelevant to human thought. They will teach you there that marriage is a thing of the past and the real thing you need to check out is polyamory. That's for everybody. They teach that people are whatever they think they are. They can identify where they want to be. One Harvard professor there thinks the existence of God is a 50% probability. I'm sure God was thrilled to hear that. Anyway, uh, the fact that the great Harvard philosophers inhabit Emerson Hall is sort of ironic because of what is engraved in stone on the outside. Charles Eliot was Harvard's president from 1869 to 1909. Uh, they built that. And during construction, he, he invited a psychologist and philosopher William James to suggest a, a suitable inscription for the stone lintel over the doors of the new home of the philosophy department. So James reflected for a while, and then it's in Eliot a line from the Greek philosopher Protagoras. Man is the measure of all things. Now James never heard back from Eliot, so his uh, curiosity was piqued when uh, he spotted the workers working behind a a canvas up there. When one of the scaffolding they worked on, the canvas was gone. An inscription said, in giant letters, What is man? that thou art mindful of him. He replaced Eliot's suggestion with words from Psalm 8 that call us to humility before God and weakness when compared with the greatness and the power of the Lord. And it's between those two lines that there's the great distance between a God-centered and a human-centered point of view when it comes to life. Just point out, by the way, Harvard has a new head chaplain, and he's an atheist. There's a word for that. Go back to that word from last Sunday, all right? So in comparison to the vast universe and God, we're like nothing. But notice something. The text says we're made a little lower than the heavenly beings, meaning the angels. In creation's order, God is spirit, angels are spirit, and we are spirit and body. And we're crowned with glory and honor as the only beings in the universe made in God's image. And it's significant—we're not compared to animals here, but to angels. Look, at rather, instead at verse six: "You have given him dominion over the work of your hand, works of your hands. You put all things under his feet: all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea." whatever passes along the paths of the seas. We are made with dominion over the animals. We're not equal with animals. We're not just a little higher than animals. Paraphrase Jay Kessler. We must all think of ourselves as a little higher than animals. The world's view is something that we've seen in any natural history museum an ascendancy of primates, some little jumping creatures, and then eventually some lumped over with, their, uh, humped over with their knuckles dragging and finally standing erect. And then when we see that final naked ape, embarrassingly like us, the world says, this is my heritage. This is where I came from. I'm a little higher than these animals. Taylor says he wouldn't debate the fact that human beings are mammals. We carry on the mammal processes, and ingestion, digestion, absorption, uh, sensitivity, reproduction, all those things. We do them without consciously thinking about them, just like the animals do. But the central statement in Scripture by humans is that we've been imputed or infused by God with a nature that's not a little higher than the animals. No, it's just a little lower than the angels. We need to grasp the dignity of humanity. Now, the world doesn't think this way. I guess we're picking on Harvard today, but they've got a physicist, Paul Horowitz, and he has dedicated his life to searching for extraterrestrial life, all right? Uh, And he says this, why does it? I feel nearly certain that any civilization we contact will be far wiser than we. To think we're the best the universe could imagine? the mediocrity of it all mediocrity friends we bear the image of God we're not mediocre we're made a little lower than the angels we're rulers we have God likeness we have a dominion mandate given to us we are his stewards we are the caretakers of everything he's made God's made it to be all under our feet He's made us kings and queens on this earth, uh, Ruling in his place. It's right to marvel at the human beings he creates. So what are the implications of this? How we look at animals? They are not our peers. Has your dog ever prayed for you? I know your cat hasn't, all right? Has your dog? Have you ever watched chimpanzees? What do they do? Someone said, yeah, you know, they sit there and they pick fleas off each other all day. Really? That's who we are? They cannot read books. They cannot write books. They cannot engage in worship. Animals are not humans. But the second implication is how we look at fallen human beings. John Piper points out we cannot worship and glorify God, the majesty of God, while treating his supreme creation with contempt whatever color or whatever age or condition that creation might be we cannot starve the aged and glorify God we cannot ignore the physically challenged the mentally challenged and glorify God we cannot treat human pregnancy like a disease and glorify God we cannot dismember preborn children and glorify God We cannot gas the Jewish or Roma humans or allow genocide to continue among the Uyghur people and glorify God. We cannot be racist based on skin color and glorify God. We cannot be prejudiced against ethnic groups and glorify God. We cannot glorify God, friends, whenever we treat the supreme creation with contempt. And we cannot ignore our responsibilities as dominion over creation to be workers to glorify God. Again, God's a worker God. God anticipates that we'll be workers. Again, tomorrow's Labor Day, work is a privilege. and As we carry our responsibilities, you see, we point people to God in whose image we're made. And then David comes back full circle in verse 9. He reaffirms the greatness of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Our purpose is he affirms, is to glorify God, to praise him, to enjoy him. Alexander Min was the Russian Orthodox priest who was martyred back in 1990. And he said, some ants build, some ants sow and later reap the crop, and some apes fight and have wars although they're not as cruel as people are. But nothing in nature except for man ever tries to think about the meaning of life. Nothing climbs above its natural physical needs. No living creature, except for the human, is able to take a risk, even the risk of death, for the sake of truth. Thousands of Christian martyrs are a unique phenomenon in the history of our solar system. And what is that truth? Emphasize one particular word here, and the word is ire. The reality is that he is our Lord. He's the God who's established a covenant with us. He's made us to be people. The truth is that the name of God reveals him as Savior, as Redeemer, as Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus the one who saves. The eternal God affirms the value of humanity by becoming one of us, taking on a human body forever and a human nature, while at the same time being fully God. As Hebrews 2 tells us, again, using these same verses from Psalm 8, this eternal God, Jesus, Emmanuel, lived among us. And our task is to become more and more like Jesus, not more and more like animals. Hebrews, by showing us these verses point to Jesus, they they show us the only perfect human being who ever lived, the only person who ever got it right when it comes to being human. So we see the astonishing dignity we have made in the image of Christ. We're at the highest point. God chose to become human. To paraphrase Dick Lucas, we should consider the, the pattern of perfect humanity that Jesus has left us. He shows us what it means to be a real human being. It's part of the reason for our current Sunday night study. In the Gospels, to be sure, we see Jesus as God. We see him as Savior. But he also shows us as human how we are to live. Jesus was a man's man. He was comfortable ministering to 12 men. He was also home among women who supported him, who were with him at the end when the men were not. Jesus was at the home with little children. When he was 12 years old, he was comfortable among theologians. He could take the greatest truths about God and use stories with simple language and teach such that a child could understand. He spoke to the crowds and individuals. He was comfortable among the religious elite like Nicodemus and the outcast like the woman at the well. He dines with the rich and with the poor. He taught with words and he acted with deeds. He was a man of prayer and a man of action turning those tables over. He was all-powerful to rule and willing to serve. He was a man of joy, a man of sorrows. What are we to be? Look at Jesus, and we will see what God intends for us to be, fully human. And Jesus gave his life for us. And he calls on us to believe in him and what he did for us on the cross in order that we might have a relationship with him. Friends, in one sense, that's the most natural thing in the universe for us to do because that's what we were made for. A relationship with God. Only sin has ruined it. But it's that very sin that Jesus died for. That's what we must believe. So I would ask you, do you believe? See, the God who created the universe and made each of us just a little lower than the angels and gave us dominion uh, wants to have a personal relationship with us. Can you say, oh, Lord, my Lord? So what about us? Neil Tyson once said, perhaps there's something deeply encoded within us genetically as human beings it forces us to ask the question, what's my place in the universe? How did it all get here? I bet there's not a single person, he said, who hasn't looked up into the night sky and thought those very same questions unprompted, not a fulfillment of a homework assignment, just by looking up. And so not to look up for the answers to those questions is to deny the most fundamental aspect of human curiosity. Uh, if you're here today and you're not yet a believer, I wonder, have you looked up? If not, look up. Let us share with you too how you can know that love. For those who are our believers, we know the answer to why we look up. We're made in the image of God. The image of God in us cries out for our Creator. And we recognize that image, and we seek to be like Him in our work and in our love. So we value human life no matter what, no ifs, No ands or buts. We're certain about our identity. We're believers made in Christ. We readily identify as human beings. And that's why we care about people hearing the gospel of Christ here in Chestnut Mountain and in Lethbridge, Canada and around the world. We want to reflect God to the world around us. We want to share the hope that we have within us. We want them to hear the good news that we're not just a blob of of atoms, randomly stuck together, but we're human beings designed and created in the image of God. And that Jesus affirms our worth by becoming one of us, showing us how to be fully human to the fullest sense of the word and then die on the cross for our sins. So, go outside on the next clear night and look at the stars. Then read this psalm. Think about the privilege to be made in the image of God. And then think about the cross. And then join David in saying, O Lord, our Lord, my Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for who you are in all of your might and glory and power and majesty. And Father, to realize that you created us in your image. Father, we confess that sin has marred that image. We've rebelled against you. Yet, Father, Jesus Christ became human that he might give his life for us. Through Christ becoming Emmanuel, you showed us the depth of your love for us and Father you showed us the value you place on us Lord somebody here that doesn't yet know the joy of being able to say oh Lord my Lord Father today show them Christ show them the cross draw them to him and Father have us have a, a right perspective as your people of who you are what it means as we work and as we live and as we love in this world that you've made and given us dominion over Father, indeed, may your name be held in honor in all the earth. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, as we close, we're going to...